0: This is
1: Metro Focus, with Raphael P. Roman, Jack Ford, and Jenna Flanagan. Metro Focus is made possible by Sue and Edgar Wachenheim III, Philomen M. D'Agostino Foundation, the Peter G. Peterson and Joan Ganz Cooney Fund, Bernard and Denise Schwartz, Barbara Hope Zuckerberg, and by Jody and John Arnhold, Dr. Robert C. and Tina Sohn Foundation, The Ambrose Monell Foundation,
0: Estate of Roland Carlin, The JPB Foundation, Hi, I'm Jenna Flanagan. A celebration of Japanese heritage and culture is returning to Manhattan. The second annual Japan Parade, a festival of Japanese art, history, and tradition, will take over Central Park West, led by this year's grand marshal, Olympic gold medalist, author, and philanthropist, Christy Yamaguchi. The event comes after the great success of last year's inaugural Japan Parade. Christy is here to tell us more about what to expect this time around, and she'll also tell us about her work and passion in the field of childhood literacy, part of our ongoing Chase in the Dream initiative. And I'd like to welcome to Metro Focus, Olympic figure skating champion and founder of the Always Dream Foundation, Christy Amaguchi. Christy, it is so great to have you on. So great to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. So first, let's uh, just talk about the parade that's going to be happening. Um, you're going to be Grand Marshal of the Japan Parade. First of all, since so many parades take place in New York, tell us a little bit about this parade and what people can expect.
1: Uh, well, first off, it's a huge honor uh, to have been asked to be the Grand Marshal. And, um, you know, this parade is special. It's only the second annual, and I'm following in the footsteps of uh, the great George DeKay, who was the very first Grand Marshal last year. And, uh, it's really a celebration of the friendship between Japan and New York City, and celebrating the culture, the Japanese uh, culture. So there'll be lots of fun, festive things happening. Um, you know, uh, Japanese dancing and music, drumming. Um, Naruto, the very, very popular anime um, series, will be have a presence. They have like a live um, performance that uh, happens. So, uh, and the parade, obviously. So it it should be a fun day, um, you know, celebrating friendship and the connection and, you know, being Japanese American, um, kind of that bridge, I think, between, Mm -hmm. um, you know, New York City and America and Japan. So, um, so yeah, I'm really looking forward to it.
0: Well, if you would, can you tell us a little bit about your own family's uh, history, um, your Japanese heritage, and what your family has experienced in America?
1: Yes, I mean, we have, uh, uh, you know, interesting history here. I'm actually fourth generation Yonsei, as they call it, uh, Japanese American. And um, during World War II, uh, my both sides of my family, my mom's side and my uh, dad's side of the family, were interned in the uh, Japanese um, Japanese American internment camps. So, uh, you know, really lost everything; were, were torn from their homes and lives, pretty much uprooted for uh, three to five years. And my mom was actually born. In the Amache, Colorado uh, internment camp. So, um, you know, while her dad was in Europe fighting uh, for the for the U.S., so you know, interesting times. I think, um, you know, a lot of hardship and you know mistakes, maybe and and panic, you know, wartime panic. But um, you know, it's amazing to see that just uh, you know one generation later um i you know i was able to go and pursue the the american dream and and follow my dream of being an olympian so um so yeah
0: (laughs) well no i i think that's very interesting and uh what one of the things that we try to touch on especially when we uh talk about uh new york's asian communities is how long the history is so you're saying that you're fourth generation um, I think is an incredibly important part of the conversation and also the visibility, uh, because again, New York city being New York, like I know a lot of people are familiar with Chinatown, um, et cetera, but to celebrate the Japanese experience and the Japanese presence in New York seems like a really special note.
1: Absolutely. Yes. Because, um, yeah, there is actually a lot bigger uh, Japanese and Japanese American presence in New York City, and I'm even learning that. So um, that's why I'm really looking forward to celebrating the state to see the community to really come out and and show their support and uh, show their pride and and everything. So um, so yeah, I think it's really important. I, and you know, especially in the last few years have been really tough on Asian Americans. Um, you know, here in the Bay Area, in San Francisco Bay Area, where I'm located, uh, and also New York, New York. Um, you know, so much um, anti-Asian hate, and I think being able to um, celebrate an, an incredible culture and to provide, you know, people with a way to learn a little bit more and discover, and you know, eventually appreciate and and hopefully, um, you know, come to uh, a point where it's like okay there there isn't anything to be afraid of or you know you know please accept and and spread the kindness a little
0: bit more no of course that's wonderful and actually speaking of uh learning more tell us a little bit about your organization always dream
1: yeah so always dream i founded back in 1996 which is hard to believe it's been over over 25 years but um, it's always been about uh, embracing the hopes and dreams of children. And uh, back in about 11 years ago, we really honed our focus into early childhood literacy, and you know, really believing that education is the foundation on which you build dreams. And uh, we do that for by making sure that families uh, from low-income communities have access to high-quality books. And uh, not only providing those resources, but also providing um, critical family engagement support, because we really want the families to understand and realize how critical their role is in their child's learning at home. And uh, by empowering them, they are really setting up their child to, um, you know, have that foundation and success in, in school and eventually later on in life. So, Um, yeah, every, every child deserves to have a book and, um, someone to read that book to them and, uh, and to engage with them.
0: Well, also, uh, your journey as an Olympic gold medalist, I think is super fascinating. And I'm wondering, um, what it is that you draw from that experience of building yourself into this world-class athlete that you were able to then take and apply to the world of philanthropy?
1: Well, I think a lot of the inspiration came from realizing how fortunate I, I was. Um, you know, my parents, my family, my community, my coaches. Um, I, I was so fortunate to have an incredible support system and, and to go after my dreams. And I think it was uh, wanting every child out there to have that same opportunity, no matter what their dream is to be a firefighter, a teacher, a doctor, um, you know, maybe an Olympian. <laughs> and to, you know, not only provide inspiration, but to provide um, resources to, to help them go after their dreams. So, um, you know, leveling the playing field a little bit and um, providing some equity so that, you know, all children have that opportunity. And um, so, yeah, that, you know, that I think, you know, realizing and uh, that the hard work, the focus, the dedication, That went into being an athlete um, is something that definitely translated into, you know, post Olympic life. How how do I channel that and and make a difference?
0: Of course, of course. And speaking of, you know, um, equity for so many children, we're now seeing uh, reports from educators that covid created, uh, I guess, maybe. a devastating impact for so many kids mm-hmm. um, in terms of their education loss. Uh, Zoom might work for two adults doing an interview, but maybe not for kids who are learning in school. And so I'm wondering, what was it that your organization learned about, you know, who was impacted and how badly that was?
1: Yes, um, it, it was tough, two years for sure. And Uh, you know, our program, our reading program targets uh, four and five-year-olds, so pre-kindergarten, TK and kindergarten. And uh, because it's a a home-based program, um, we were very lucky we didn't have to make too many adjustments during the pandemic. Um, You know, I think that's when we learned, wow, um, how tough it is and, you know, how hard uh, that role of a parent, teacher at home is and um you know the learning loss is real you know for sure and i think we're still recovering and i think the recovery will take another a couple of years to really um have everyone catch up
0: of course and how like what are some of the uh, I guess perhaps best practices that at your organization um suggests to help parents support their young children in their literacy journey?
1: Well, I mean, first off, it's um helping them understand that yes, that is that that's a huge role that they can play and that we want them to play. And then two, it's um, you know, giving them the tools like You know our reading program has uh, three different modules throughout the year, and the first module is called um, asking questions. So all we do, uh, sorry, not asking questions, picture walking, and all we do is ask them to sit down with their child and look at a book, look at the pictures. Um, They don't necessarily even have to read it, but point out what they see. Ask their, you know, you know, what color is this or uh, look at the tree and aren't those flowers pretty or all of that is vocabulary and brain development that in connections that are happening with their child um, our second module is asking questions and at that point we're um, encouraging and helping the, the families ask questions to their child when they're reading like you know what do you think happens next in the story or what was your favorite part? Uh, you know, things like that in the third modules, making meaning, which is taking what they've learned about what they read and connect it to their own life and, and yeah, their world around them. So, um, so you know, it's it's all of those little tips and strategies that we try to provide the families and the parents um, uh, to yeah to just empower them.
0: All right. Well, on that note, uh, Christy Yamaguchi, huge personal fan myself, but uh, I am excited to hear about this work that you've taken on and also uh, looking forward to seeing you in the Japan Parade. So thank you so much for joining us on Metro Focus.
1: Well, thank you for having me. Uh, look forward to seeing everyone out
0: there at the parade. Good evening and welcome to Metro Focus. I'm Jenna Flanagan. Will computers be humanity's savior, or will they spell our ultimate downfall? That's long been a question from science fiction, but these days there's a lot of anxiety around technology, thanks largely to the rapid advancements in AI technology that has many people worried the technology is moving too fast and in an unpredictable direction. But a new book by theoretical physicist and bestselling author, Dr. Mishio Kaku puts things in perspective. It's called Quantum Supremacy, How the Quantum Computer Revolution Will Change Everything. Now, Dr. Mishio Kaku is a professor of physics at the City University of New York. And he argues that advancements in technology could solve a lot of the world's biggest problems from climate change to food insecurity to deadly diseases. So joining me now to talk about potential advancements in quantum computing is the author of Quantum Supremacy, Dr. Michio Kaku. Dr. Kaku, welcome to Metro Focus. Glad to
2: be on the show.
0: So I guess let's just get right to it. And um, when you talk about advancements in uh, computing technology, helping humanity and not hurting, what does that look like? Because I do think there's a lot of anxiety on the part of a lot of people right now.
2: Well, we're entering the third stage of computer power. In the first stage, we had levers, cranks, wheels, pulleys to do a calculation. After World War II, we entered the second stage where we started to use electricity, we started to use binary, we started to use uh, transistors. Now we're entering stage three, the quantum era, when we're no longer computing on levers, gears, and pulleys, we're computing on atoms this is the ultimate computer we're talking about computers that are millions of times more powerful than today's computers and this means that silicon valley may become a rust belt unless they too get on the bandwagon and realize that we're entering stage three computing on atoms rather than transistors and that's going to affect the environment energy Uh, biology, medicine, you name it, it's going to change everything.
0: So then one of the, and bear with me because I know so precious little, and I think what most people understand about uh, this third phase, as you describe it of um, computing technology comes from, you know, movies comes from Hollywood. And so, I think there's a concern that there could be something almost akin to the Terminator films where computers are becoming self-aware and they become more powerful than us. And am I being completely ridiculously over the top? (laughs)
2: well there is a debate among computer scientists but most scientists would say that it's many decades away and we have many decades to prepare for that in the meantime quantum computers will solve many of the problems facing us today we're talking about global warming we're talking about food supply, we're talking about cancer, aging, we're talking about diseases like COVID-19. All of them are gonna be attacked by quantum computers that compute on atoms, rather than on um, on, uh, what we have today, which is transistors. Now, when you wanna see a quantum computer, just go outside, see the flowers, see the trees, the leaves. These are quantum mechanical devices converting sunlight the carbon dioxide into oxygen and chlorophyll and the food that we see around us. Mother nature is the strongest, most powerful quantum mechanic of all. And we are trying to duplicate that in the laboratory now, which means ultimately using molecules to attack cancer, to attack different diseases like the aging process. Things that are way beyond traditional digital computers can be attacked by quantum computers.
0: Okay, because that was gonna be my question is what does that look like? But it sounds like what you're saying is that this is something that we've lived with just in the natural world, not in the man-made world. So it's maybe not something to be feared?
2: That's right. No, a digital computer computes on zeros and ones, zeros and ones, that's called binary. That's what's called the digital revolution. Mother nature does not use digital. That is what humans do because we're so feeble. Nature uses waves, electron waves. This is called the quantum theory, the theory of the atom. And this is how Mother Nature creates life. This is how Mother Nature creates photosynthesis. And we're not trying to duplicate that in the laboratory. So we're a few steps behind Mother Nature, but we're catching up. So we're using quantum theory in order to manipulate nature's quantum theory of diseases, of food supply, of weather, all the things that we know and love and sometimes have to deal with are going to be dealt with at the quantum level.
0: Okay. So then uh for example, because you talked about you know how nature works and um We just went through a global pandemic where we saw this virus jump from, you know, person to person, country to country so fast that sometimes we were racing to keep up with it as the virus mutated. Uh, How does quantum uh, physics or quantum computing, (laughs) but how does that help, I guess, warn us or prevent perhaps this happening again?
2: Well, two ways. First of all, how is it that the COVID-19 virus becomes so deadly? When you look at the picture, there are spikes, spikes on the surface of the virus. These spikes are actually keys, keys to the kingdom. They hit the cell in our lungs and unlock, unlock the mechanism. That's how it enters into the body. We now know exactly what these, these uh, keys look like, and we can begin to use quantum physics now to disarm these keys. So in other words, that's how viruses infect us at the molecular level. This is way beyond a digital computer. A digital computer cannot manipulate the spikes on the surface of the COVID-19 virus. This is where quantum physics comes in. We're using quantum physics in order to alter the quantum physics of diseases, aging, cancer, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's disease, all these diseases operate at the molecular level. We are clueless using digital computers, which only compute on zeros and ones, zeros and ones. Quantum computers compute on atoms, and that's what the universe is made of, atoms and molecules, and that's how we're gonna attack diseases like cancer and Parkinson's, diseases that are incurable with digital computers.
0: So you brought up uh, Silicon Valley and how potentially um, this kind of computing could make Silicon Valley a rust belt. But one of the things that a lot of the engineers who were working in Silicon Valley when they were creating the apps, you know, back when there was an app for that was a big thing, didn't necessarily take into consideration um humanity or human uh, experience, like how people would use the technology they were bringing forward. And so I'm, my question to you is, is it possible that with these incredible advancements, like you're talking about, being able to work on a, a cellular level, on at an at, anatomical at level, I believe is the correct language, but is there any possibility that humans who are complicated and frequently flawed, could this be used in a negative, nefarious way?
2: well let's be very blunt about this these computers are so powerful that even the cia is worried because the crown jewels of the secrets of any nation are in the codes we have these huge codes to protect our secrets nuclear weapon secrets and armament secrets but quantum computers are so powerful they can break through many of these codes That's why it's not surprising that the U.S. government is monitoring the developments of quantum computers very carefully. But there are ways to guard against it. But we have to start now thinking about these things. The U.S. government recently issued a directive saying that, yes, quantum computers today cannot penetrate our codes, but it's coming. It's coming, and we have to be prepared for that. Because let's face it, Quantum computers are so powerful, they can go right through the barriers set up by digital computers. And this is a re- one reason why Silicon Valley is also jumping on the bandwagon. Who are the leaders in quantum computing technology? The Chinese and the United States. Those are the two countries that are way ahead of everyone in terms of perfecting quantum computers. And so it's a good thing that we're investing in this technology today because, yeah, there are some downsides computer secrecy could be uh, could be uh, breached with quantum computers.
0: Well, given what you just said then, because I also understand you would understandably be a fan of science fiction, but uh, the way a lot of science fiction presents uh, the technology that you're talking about, again, going back to the Terminator example, it's in a very dark, ominous kind of way. So is this something for, I guess, all of us to be, afraid of, or is this something that we can put in the effort and the work to get out in front of and make sure that it is used in a positive way?
2: Well, any technology could be used for good or bad. On one side of the double-edged sword, it could cut against disease, poverty, and ignorance. The other side of the double-edged sword could cut against people. But we have time. Quantum computers are just beginning to enter the marketplace now. Some of them are being sold commercially. And so because of that fact, we have plenty of time to prepare for any unforeseen circumstances that may unfold in the future. But right now, we see tremendous plus signs. Companies are jumping on the bandwagon. Silicon Valley has gotten gotten religion now. And Silicon Valley is saying, yes, we too. Have to be in the ball game. IBM and Google and Microsoft, yeah, they're all jumping in. This is the next hot thing on Wall Street. In fact, people are investing in this technology now. And then we can we can anticipate, anticipate future problems before they emerge. So we're going to be one step ahead this time. We're not going to be caught off guard, realizing, oh, oh my God, this com- quantum computer is more powerful than we thought.
0: So, when you, you're in your book title, when you refer to quantum supremacy, uh, it's about the supremacy of humans using the technology, not the technology ruling over humans.
2: Well, the the term comes from the the scientific establishment. Quantum supremacy is the point at which a quantum computer can exceed the power of our mightiest digital supercomputer. That was passed two years ago. Two years ago, we created quantum computers that are millions, billions of times more powerful than an ordinary digital computer for certain tasks. Not in general, but for certain tasks, quantum computers have already exceeded quantum supremacy. Now, many years ago, uh, quantum computers computed that three times five is 15. Many people laughed. And said quantum computers are never going to get off the ground if all you can do is compute three times five is 15. Well, that was years ago. Today, quantum computers can outrace any known supercomputer for certain tasks. And that's why Wall Street and that's why Silicon Valley is now jumping on the bandwagon. This is one of the hottest things in the stock market.
0: Wow. All right. Well, for anyone who wants to learn more, the book is called Quantum Supremacy, How the Quantum Computer Revolution Will Change Everything. And uh, Dr. Michio Kaku, thank you so much for joining us and helping to explain and perhaps demystify what could be coming in our future. Thank you. Absolutely.
2: Thanks for tuning in to MetroFocus. You can take our award-winning program with you wherever you go with MetroFocus the podcast. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, so you never miss an episode. Or simply ask your smart speaker to play MetroFocus the podcast. Also available at metrofocus.org, wliw.org/radio, and on the NPR One app.